magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses and therefore themselves and everyone around them through his transformational training program. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I am your host Warwick Schiller and in this episode we actually get to meet someone uh, that I've talked about quite a bit on the podcast. So you may have had me, uh, heard me talk about the, um, the four levels of awareness in a relationship. You know, I've, I've talked about it where I talk about it at clinics to where number one is what's going on with you, number two is what's going on with them, Number three is what's going on between the two of you. And number four is what's going on in the environment. And so where we got that was uh, from our friend, Beth N. Standig. So Beth is a, a licensed psychotherapist. That's hard to get your mouth around this time of day. And uh, she has a program called the Circle Up Experience. And in that Circle Up Experience, she's trained thousands of CEOs managers and teams from Fortune 1000 companies, universities and non-profits, helping them tap into their natural leadership to live, lead and work with genuine connection. Circle Up's model of natural leadership and experiential learning with horses integrates human psychology, animal behavior and natural systems to offer a unique approach to personal and professional development. Doesn't that sound good? So without any further ado, let's uh, let's get Beth on the podcast and find out how she got to where she got to and what we have to learn from her. Beth, welcome to the Journey On Podcast. Thank you for having me here. I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. I tried to hit you up last year, but you decided we decided we would wait until your book was about to come out so we could uh, have a bit of an impact with that. So when is your book coming out or is it out already? It's coming out on April 12th. April 12th, coming up soon. That's very cool. Um, we will it talk actually ab- is not. It's, it's terrifying is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> is this- I actually think that, that I may die of vulnerability if that's, a, if that's a life-threatening phenomenon, vulnerability. I think that's what's happening right now for me. Uh, you and I both know vulnerability is the ultimate badassery, so I don't think you can die of badassery, can you? I'm, I'll, tell, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'm in the process. It's very terrifying to to go through the process of writing a book and putting your work out into the world and and letting go. And you know, it's um, I didn't think about that ahead of time. I didn't know I was going to feel that way. So, tell us about that. What's what's terrifying about it? Um, I have learned in my own journey, um, to how to be honest with myself and how to be honest out in the world. And I didn't, I I didn't start that way. I started really hiding from myself and hiding from others. And, but in that process of, um, of being more open, um, with myself and the world, you know, you're, it's, it's, I really have to put it all out there. And, and what that means is my own story and my ideas and, 
Um, and the world isn't always kind. It can be an insensitive world. And so I know I can handle that, but it's another thing to just put who you are and what, what you think and your studies and your beliefs out into the world for scrutiny and knowing that it, it can be an unkind world. The good news is that it could really impact people and animals in a powerful, meaningful way. And so it's worth it, but it's, it is scary. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know about the, I think, um, you know, I think social media is probably more scary because you get, you get immediate feedback. Like someone reads your book and they think you're an idiot. You don't know that. You know right. what I mean? Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't be terrified or anything. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disregarding your experience. I'm just, I'm just thinking, cause I'm, you know, I'm halfway, three quarters of the way through a book that I've been supposed to be writing for about four years now. And I, you know, I, I hadn't had that thought about, oh God, what will people think? Because I, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting, interesting um, concept. I think that the permanence of it as an artifact is more, um, there's more permanence to it than in social media, which is so fleeting. So whatever happens there, it keep it moves so fast. But a book is an artifact. And you know, my first career is as a writer, and I, I've been a poet my whole life, and I, I have an MFA in creative writing and poetry and really believe in the artifact of literature and art and so it becomes a very fixed moment in, you know, a, a, a person's creativity. And so it is what it is. And it lives there as, as this object of, of creation. And so whereas social media, it almost, it comes and goes, it's like a fog light. It just, it comes and goes and, and we move on so quickly. So we can, we can fumble and stumble and fall on our faces and everyone sees it and, and does what they, you know, they, they do what they do with it, but then it, we all move on. Whereas I think with a book, you know, as soon as I saw the book and opened it and realized like, oh, I should have done this. And I, I wish I had done that. And this is missing. And because it's, it's imperfectly perfect. And so it's a really good exercise in, in learning vulnerability and, and learning imperfection and, and, and being able to, um, to stand in some self-leadership around, you know, this is, this is my best work at this moment in time and, um, and, and learning to live with that and sit with it. I think I just realized why it's, I've been writing a, a book that I, I know the content of like the back of my hand, why it's taken me four years to write this book. It's because of that, because I'm like, no, but what if I think differently? about because you know as you know a lot of people know i've changed a lot of the the way i do things in the last um four or five years and and i have rewritten parts of the mm -hmm. rewritten parts of the book but yeah i think it's almost like oh but what if yeah, it's not it's not quite that's yeah that's the permanence that's of it yeah it's the permanence of it and realizing because we are always moving like nature is always moving. And so the human animal and all of our complexities and our mind and our ideas are always in movement. And so when you publish the book, you know, it becomes this object and it stops moving, but you keep moving. 
And so as soon as the actual artifact of the book arrived and I opened the boxes and held it in my hands, I realized that I had moved forward from what I wrote. And so that is exactly what happens. And it's what I think why people probably avoid writing books because you're, we, we keep trying to perfect it, but it's perfect only in that moment. Like I already think there's a chapter missing from this book. So what I've been trying to tell myself is, well, then that's the next book. And, um, I really had to get, I had to get a handle of that while I was writing it. I just didn't realize how, how hard it would be to then hold the imperfect artifact of the past and realize I was in a new place today. Yes. So you, before we got on here, you mentioned that you were, you, um, we've, Rob and I've just been away in Arizona for a couple of weeks and you mentioned that you wish you had got us a copy of the book beforehand. And, um, even if you had sent us a copy, you're going to send it to us in Arizona. And even if you had sent it to us, um, I probably wouldn't have got to read it because I've got so many good books right now. It's not funny. And I was, I did a clinic in Arizona before we went to Arizona. So I did a clinic in Arizona, flew back and a week later, we went down there for a horse show and then camping in the desert and riding our horses in the desert. And at that clinic in Arizona, someone left a book on the signing desk for me. And it's a fascinating book. It's pretty meaty, but it's called Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Our Worst by a fellow named Robert Sapolsky. And I'm, I'm digging it. It's going to be one of those books that when I get to the end of it, I'm going to be, view the world probably a bit differently than I did before I read it. So his work, um, I'm so excited to, to know about this new book because his work and an early book of his um, really informed my journey and, and my work. And the, the book that I read, um, was called why zebras don't get ulcers. And I went to a workshop of his, he, he used to teach at Stanford. I don't know if he's still associated with Stanford, but I went to a workshop, um, of his at Stanford. And, um, and when I came across his work and the ideas behind his work, it, it dramatically changed me as a, as a human animal, my, my perception of my own animals and also my understanding of psychology. It was, it was a pivotal book for me. So it's so cool that you are just digging into that book and his work. And I'm excited to see where he's taken his work. Uh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'll, when I get through with this one, I'll have to get the other one. What's it called? Why zebras don't why get, zebra, yeah. Why zebras don't get ulcers. Yeah. And it, it really, um, it changed me. It, it, and it was early on that, that he put that work out. It was early on in our, um, our understanding of trauma and the effects of stress on the body and, and trauma informed or trauma focused research in the psychology world. And so it, it's a really, it's a very pivotal piece of work. Really? Was it, do you know if it was pre or post, say, um, Waking the Tiger or The Body Keeps the Score? It was before that. Oh, really? So I it's believe really, so. Wow. It was, I believe so. It may have been um, parallel with uh, Peter Levine's with Waking the Tiger. It may have been right around the same time. And it's similar, as similar ideas. I mean, it really looks at what happens to mammals in captivity. And I, I, you know, my work is about putting the human animal 
in our study of mammals, really looking at ourselves through that lens as, as human animals and as herd animals. And it looks at what, when the body, when the, the mammal body is allowed to move through the stress response, it doesn't store stress chemicals and hormones and stress phenomenons in the body. And so it doesn't get disease. And, and, but when the, when animals in captivity, including us, because we live in a lot of socialized captivity, meaning that we don't, we aren't necessarily allowed to move through our stress and take care of our stress as a need. And so we end up holding it and it creates incredible disease. It creates stress injuries um, and and stress disease, including post-traumatic stress disorder, but also all of the other secondary diseases that come from stress. Don't you think that, like on that vein, right, on that topic right there, don't you think we kind of, a lot of the problem is we live completely differently than we evolved? Just like, you know, animals in the wild, why zebras don't get ulcers is because they are living how they evolved, whereas we are living differently how we evolved. You know, things like, like I don't know if you've um, listened to the podcast with, say, um, Rupert Isaacson, where he talks about, you know, the, the traditional hunter-gatherers and, you know, for instance, you don't the child does not sleep in another room or across the room from you because an animal could come in your cow dung hut in the nighttime and, and take it. And, you know, just the way we, we go about everything these days is kind of probably a bit opposing to the way we're supposed to, you know, the way we evolved. And so we, we're kind of all dysfunctional about that. Yeah. I think there's um, huge truth in that. And it's, it's, really at the heart of my my book and it's at the heart of the work that I do with with people and it's why I really have moved away from traditional psychotherapy and into experiential work with animals and in nature because we have have suppressed a, a lot of our connection to and awareness of our the signals of instinct and it it isn't so much that the evolution is a bad thing and that our, our intellectual prowess, our incredible neocortex that's developed within us. I mean, what an incredible supercomputer we have sitting on our shoulders, right? Like this is, this is, it's exquisite and beautiful. And I'm, I'm a writer. I'm an artist. Of course, I love that part of me that's, that uses language and thought and makes meaning out of my experiences the problem is, is that we abandoned this other part of us and it is the part of us that's, um, that's much more connected to nature and, and into the animal of us, the animal body and all that it wants to let us know about our needs and about how to be in a herd. And so it isn't so much that we want one or the other. We're really looking at how do we integrate and how do we, how do we bring back in this part of us that we have abandoned. There's a lot of parts of the world that haven't abandoned it. You know, I think when we talk about this collective, we, we want to make sure that we're not, you know, that there's, that we're, we are looking at kind of a Western, the Western phenomenon of 
you know, first world countries and people of privilege. I think that when we're in a lot of survival, more survival based environments or groups, you'll see people much more aware of their own needs and of each other's needs and of needing each other. And that's, that's really at the heart of this is that the signals of the body are informing us about needs. You, somewhere in there, you said something about survival groups. Is that what you said? Or survival something or other? Groups that are more connected to their survival. Okay. So, yeah. So, I I don't know if I've ever told you this because Beth, Beth and I have been trail riding quite a bit together. So, we, we trail yeah. ride for hours and babble away at stuff. But I did a, a, and I think I've mentioned this in the podcast maybe once before, but I did a clinic in Australia a number of years ago. And, and that night, we all went to dinner and I sat next to one of the clinic participants who was from South Africa. And we'd moved to Australia in the last few years. And I said, how do you like Australia? And she said, oh, the energy is not the same. Mm-hmm. And I thought she meant, yeah, Australia's got this cool ve- beachy vibe energy. It's cool, you know. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, there's just, there's, there's, no, there's no energy in the air. She said, when I go back to South Africa and I get off the plane, as soon as I step off the plane, I can feel the energy in the air. Mm. And I said, and what do you think that is? And she said, oh, that's easy. Every human and animal in South Africa knows today's the day I could die. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and, and I, being connected to that makes us more alive. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, like I read lots of stuff and it's all the stuff I'm into these days is about kind of rewilding ourselves, you know, like mm-hmm. I've been taking ice baths and and reading a lot of shamanic stuff and reading about um, one of my favorite books is a book called um, Stealing Fire, mm-hmm. which is by a fellow named Stephen Kotler, and it's about altered states of consciousness. But one in one of the, one of the parts of that book, it talks about altered states of consciousness through doing death-defying things. You know, like right, you know, rock climbing, wingsuiting, all all that, all extreme sports, and because that's the that's the way they feel alive. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I was chasing that a whole, for a whole bunch of my life. And I think it's why we're attracted to horses and animals, because there's an aliveness in them that we are struggling to access. The hard part is we really let them down when we don't access it. So we're on the one hand attracted to it and we want to do things with them and be with them. Because it wakes us up in us and we're, we admire it and we're craving it. And we're wanting more of that for ourselves. And then we set up these scenarios and these relationships and we do our, our animal life in a way that actually suppresses it. And it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. And the good news is the horses always tell us the truth about that. And they, they do object. They do have opinions about us suppressing ourselves. And suppressing them too, I think. Correct. Yeah. But, thank but, goodness. But they don't they don't do it for the most part, they don't do it in such a way that it's totally obvious. It's pretty it's pretty subtle and you've got to I think you've got to go down the path of a bit of personal in- introspection maybe before you are ready to you know, kinda of go look inside a bit before you can actually see it in other animals, especially like the horses, you know, they, I mean, being prey animals, they're very, very good at hiding. Subtle communication. Yeah. They're, they're very mm-hmm. good at hiding the fact that they might be concerned or 
whatever. And I think a lot of people, you know, if they have horses that aren't very good at hiding the fact they're concerned, they're problem horses. But when you become a, and I've got my fingers up here for inverted commoners, when you become a horse trainer, you're very good at getting rid of those problem behaviors, but all you're doing is suppressing it. You're not, That's right. you, you are not working through it. You're just saying, you're basically right. saying, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And then you end up with the fallout of the whole stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about parenting style. So in, in relational systems, which is what I study in relation, the relational systems of mammals in the relational system of a, a human family, the most symptomatic or the problem, the, the, the person in the system who's, who is the biggest problem is actually the truth teller. And they are telling you where the system is out of balance. And so they're not necessarily, and, and in the model that I was trained in, it, it isn't so much that they're the problem or that they're showing you a problem. It's not pathological. It's just looking at the system and where it is has not come into balance, where there's an aspect of it that's needing more of one thing and an aspect that's needing less of another. And so, you know, these, the horses that are the most are animals or are people that are the most, um, you know, the most communicative about where things are out of balance. They're signaling, they, they show us those signals the most are our teachers. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. That's right. That's right. And I've had a lot of those, a lot of those. I, I think I pick those animals that are, that I'll shove it right in my face. <laughs> so I've had, I've had a number of those really powerful animal teachers. Do you, do you think you pick them or do you think you get the animal you need at the time? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. I think there's a part of us that knows what we need and 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 that and I do think it's instinct driven and I think we're attracted to certain templates in relationship based on our early experiences um and then so I think there's some magic to it it's almost like an animal grazing they will graze in the places they need those sorts of nutrients it's kind of the same thing where we will a, yeah. gravitate towards the the animal that subconsciously we know has a lesson to teach us without us actually consciously making that. That's right. That's absolutely right. And we're the same as far as grazing goes, just, just to throw that in there as, as herd animals, if you start thinking about the things that you are craving to eat, you know, it's your body just signaling to you that it's needing more or less of something. Really? You think so? I do. Okay. Except for sugar. Uh, no, I've I've had which a, is just a drug. <laughs> no, along those lines, though, I've had a little epiphany lately. It might have been while we're in Arizona in the desert. There's something about that desert that makes you ponder your belly button. But I'm think I've been thinking. I think I crave dopamine food. Like what? Anything that you know, and any anything that 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 is fun to eat. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily good for me, but, you know, cause we've talked about it before, you know, I've, I'm on the depression scale and low on the yeah. dopamine sort of thing. And yeah, you know, like I, I, um, 
don't know if I stress eat, but I, you know, I will, mm-hmm. I can snack on stuff I shouldn't snack on and eat the whole bag of chips or whatever, you know what I mean? And I got to think about it the other day, I was like, I'm just craving dopamine. Yeah. Well, think if we go back to this idea about the way that we are often suppressing that aliveness and you think about it less from food is one factor, but what are all of the ways that we're needing more aliveness? And if that's out of balance, if we're not getting enough of that experience of feeling, you know, like the the friend, the South African friend talked about where you're really connected to very plugged into the electricity of life and death, where you're, you're really, um, that current is running through you and you're wide awake and aware of what's happening within you and around you and between you and you're, you're, you are, you're fully checked in. If we don't have enough of that, we're going to seek that out in all kinds of other ways. And so because that dopamine system, we're not getting enough of, of what we need. And so I think sometimes we start to slap labels on top of it and it's definitely I really moved, I was trained to put labels on things as, as a, as a therapist. And I really learned to stop doing that and instead to look at what, what is the signal that what's the signal here that's telling you what the need is. And I found it to be a gentler approach, but also incredibly direct. It's not you know, it, it's not letting you off the hook. <laughs> it isn't necessarily saying you, you know, oh, just be gentle with yourself and and find some affirmations. It's actually saying, well, of course you have a need, and now that you know it, you you actually have a responsibility to fulfill it. Well, that's it. So that's so you're saying that's <clears throat> excuse me, that's kind of flipped the switch on the way you were taught to. Yeah, I was taught, I, I think the the traditional psychology approach, you know, it's a new field and it's not that old of a field. We're not that far from Freud, you know, it's, it's a new field. And so, um, but the medical model very much looks at what's wrong and the, the way that I, the way that I was taught by one of my most powerful mentors um, was to look at what's right about the signals that are happening. What is the system telling you? And, and it's really just more about things being out of balance versus right or wrong. And so we look at things from more of a dialectic that there's things are, are off balance and we're, we get signals around trying to find the tension between opposites versus looking at one thing or another and calling something good or bad we actually try to find this middle zone where things can come into a state of equilibrium. A little bit like Chinese medicine sort of thing. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of any, if you look at any of the um, practices or models through which to see the world that are more, that, that are, you know, they're going to be older and more closely linked to nature, you're going to find that they're seeking balance rather than trying to pathologize. And I think we need a lot more of that in the world right now. You can just turn on the news for five minutes and see that we're all about polarity. And it, 
uh, it, it doesn't bring us together. It causes stress. It takes us out of a state of internal ease and it creates relational dis-ease as well. So it, it doesn't help. And yet that's absolutely what, you know, we're trained in disease model and um, we're just starting to come into a new way of thinking about that around wellness. Funny thing is, though, is it a new way of thinking or it's a quite an old way of thinking? You know, the, like you, th- you, th- you think about, you know, like traditional, say, Chinese medicine, I mentioned a minute ago, and it's, it's all about systems and it's finding out what's out of alignment, you know, and, and right. disease is dis-ease. Right. Um, and even all like the, the trauma-informed work, that I've looked into a little bit, and of course you've done it for a living, it's kind of almost going back to older wisdom sort of thing. It's not like it's, it's not like it's new. It's almost like the science these days is <clears throat> validating things that, you know, went on 10,000 years ago sort of thing, like family That's systems right. and things like that. That's right. That's exactly what we're doing. We got lost for a period and um, as a species and language and thought and the written word, it's very seductive and it takes us, you know, the intellectual exercise is its own, uh, addiction and it takes us away from the natural system of the body and, and away from nature. And that's absolutely what we're returning to. And you can see it in horsemanship. We're returning to a much more indigenous based, model of how to partner mammal to mammal. And I think that's what you're seeing a lot of attraction to that, that because it, we know on an innate level that it is a way of coming into balance relationally. So let's, that's maybe a good segue into your book, The Human Herd. Um, what, let's, let's talk a bit about the book. Um, why don't you talk about the book? <laughs> you know what made you decide okay i should write this book um you know has been brewing for quite a while tell the whole tell us the whole backstory of the book so i have had incredible teachers uh both human and animal in my life and i've been um studying ma- mammals um and particularly dogs and horses since i was very young and I, my, my first memory of really being a student of this, being that there was an awareness at a young age that there was a discrepancy between the way that people were operating and that the way the animals were, I was probably around four or five years old, where I have this very distinct memory of observing it. And, and it was the beginning of my mistrust of humans. And it was the beginning of a much deeper commitment to other animals. But it, it started me on a painful journey of um, some, some self-isolation and not being able to find my way through the human experience as naturally as I could with the animal experience. And so I've been on this very long path of trying to reconcile that. And it's been through my own growth, um, my own 
study of, of human psychology and an ongoing study of animals. And so the book is about, it has some personal story in it, but it also has the core concepts that I've learned from the animals that I call our natural leadership. It's the, the way that we naturally lead ourselves through the world and, and lead ourselves in our relationships so that we can actually take better care of ourselves. And it, it looks at these core concepts and how to apply them to human life, especially if we can see ourselves as mammals and as herd animals and how to practice them. So it's a bit of a hybrid book. It tells personal story. It explains these concepts. And it offers some exercises to do that are just some simple practices um, that can make a huge difference in how we how we help ourselves find balance day to day and also how to see how to bring our relational world, whether it's human to human or human to other animals into balance. You know, it sounds great. You know, I think the best way to learn stuff is is listening to story and i love how you're weaving personal anecdotes in there as well as structured information but i think the other part of that too is i'm sure the stories are not oh i did everything perfectly right you know (laughs) there's a bit of vulnerability there there's a bit of you've got some skin in the game as far as the reader relating to you it's not like you're saying i have always done things perfectly and you know you you imagine you use your personal stories to illustrate a point about how you you know how you grew and how you learned different things yeah i mean they're painful stories and um and i mean i've i've come out the other side and i'm sitting here able to to tell the story of it and there's i've done a lot of healing so those stories are, you know, part of, part of how we heal from trauma is we take things that are painful and we take wounds and we turn them into resources. They become wisdoms. And so I hope that the stories share both, but I'm certainly not afraid to, to, to talk about the wounds, but I, it's because they're not, I have done that work and, um, and those, I, those, those wounds or the, the ways that I've stumbled through my own story, my own human story and my relationships, I, I do see them as things that help me now and also ways that I can share them to help others. And that's really, that's also an ancient practice. You know, storytelling and sharing wisdom and sharing resources with others is part of herd life. Um, herds are multi-generational groups and they share wisdoms of what they've walked through and survived to help the next generation learn. We, we learn through mentorship. And so a lot of the, you know, my, my book is definitely about my own story, but it's also about the teachers that I've encountered along the way that have helped me learn how to do life and learn how to do relationship. And we don't have the, we don't have a, a formula for that in school and we don't necessarily do that in our homes where we're really seeing ourselves, you know, as parents that we're mentors, we're supposed to be stewarding our, our children. And, and we, we were designed to do much more multi-generational life living, not these nuclear families in isolation. So 
I think that, you know, just going back to, you know, these old practices, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, that my stories are, are, are bringing with them the, um, the, the messiness of how we get wisdom and, and then, you know, inspire us to inspire other people, inspire readers to, to look at their own stories and, and find a way to turn those painful things or those confusing things to get the help that you need so that those confusing things that we go through become wisdom. They don't stay confusing. They don't have to stay painful. We can make sense of them and, and learn, and then we have something to offer the world. You know, while you were talking in there, it just reminded me of something that I posted on Facebook just a couple of days ago. And I want to read it. I want to share it with you right now. I didn't write it. I just shared it. I, it was written by someone named Laura Mull, M-U-H-L. But it said, perhaps the reason teens isolate themselves when they're overwhelmed instead of coming to us with their problems is because when they're toddlers, we isolate them when they're overwhelmed instead of helping them with their problems. When our kids are small and trying to manage emotions, they can't express what they're feeling. They throw tantrums, they throw things, they have meltdowns, they scream and they whine. This is their way of communicating with us. They need help to organize, process and express their feelings in a healthy way. And society tells us we should punish them for this, send them to their room, put them in the timeout, spank them. We teach them and train them not to show their emotions. Don't whine, don't complain, your feelings are wrong, be quiet. Eventually they stop expressing their emotions to us because we told them over and over again we didn't want to hear it. For so long they need to deal with it alone, alone in their room, in their chair, in their corner. And then they turn to teenagers, blah, 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 blah. And... What you were talking about then kind of made me think of that. Does that is that kind of the same thing that you were on about there? Yeah, I mean that's that's what I experienced, and you know, I, it's what a lot of us experience that that suppression of what's alive in us. It's, it's we're suppressing, you know, what happens with with children when they're signaling something to us they're talking they're they're telling us non-verbally or verbally about their needs and if adults don't know how to manage that if parents aren't equipped and haven't learned how to manage that how to manage themselves how to manage their own temper tantrum they're susceptible to the child's emotional dysregulation and the parent falls apart and can't actually give the child what they need and it's absolutely what I grew up with. I grew and I and I was aware at a young age that it that something was very off. And yet I'd sit and watch my animals take care of themselves and each other in this completely different way. And I I watched the juxtaposition of that and I really stopped trusting people. And when I became a teenager, I think I think adolescence is when we have our first spiritual crisis. For, for most people, and it's why in many tribal cultures, indigenous groups have a lot of ritual around that coming of age because we need it. What happens is we, we, we can't go into a childhood reverie or an imaginative state or even a, there's a lot of dissociation that can happen in early childhood where we go into kind of this other world of this internal world. In adolescence, our hormones 
flood our systems and every, all the light switches go on. And so we have all these feelings and we're aware that our needs are not being met and no one's listening to us. And it's a very terrifying time. And that awareness, the hormones click on the awareness. And that is when we first start to lose faith in the world around us and lose faith in, in humanity. And it's when we need the most support and it's when our culture is the cruelest. We're so mean to teenagers. It's terrible. And it's when most teenagers start using substances. So that's what happened to me. I mean, it was my, my first spiritual crisis paralleled when I started drinking and using drugs. I became more alive and awake and to the truth around me. It was, I did not have a world that met that and gave me what I needed. And I started finding things that allowed me to control my feelings. So I could numb the painful ones, or I could use substances to feel alive, one or the other. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a generational thing. Um, like as far as the, the, the thing I just read out then, I mean, you know, um, 55 so my childhood was quite a while ago and it's that's still floating around these days I, f I saw a meme the other day that was really good it said what if stop crying turned into i'm listening mm. for an entire generation yeah the introduction to my book is about is about my daughter teaching me something that she needed it's called settling in and it's a practice that she taught me and put words to she's like my the first mammal that was young enough to still be connected to her mammal needs and have language and i'm like oh my goodness i have like a magic teacher in my house now who can tell me her needs and and she can put words to it and so the introduction to the book is a story about emma who's just this incredible, honest being. And she has been just fully awake and alive since she came into the world. And it's the story of being able to listen to her and, and realizing that what she was telling me that she was needing was something that I needed in that moment. And, and it was, it was really a, a reckoning of, um, it level set us as, as equals that she, you know, that parenting was not about, it was, it was, I, I, I knew it at that point already because I'm a therapist and it's like, it, it just crushes you as a parent because you're so aware of everything that you do. You know, you're, you're just like, oh gosh, I just like make it or break it here. But there, the moment that I write about in the book is it really, um, sealed the deal on seeing her as a teacher and um, and listening to her on a whole new level, especially because she could really put words to the human experience. And our children tell the truth. You know, uh, Robin's done a bit of work with you, and she's actually taken that settling in thing and used it at, at the start of uh, a few clinics, and it really, really is a great way to start the clinics out. Um, I think everybody's in a bit of a different headspace after they do that instead of sitting there like tight and right. what are we going to do? And, you know, breaks the air. Yeah. It's a, it's, 
it's a pretty it's when robin's done it it's been it's been really good and something i borrowed from you um that i use at clinics all the time is the so what are they the four what the four channels of awareness the four channels of awareness number one what's going on with me number two what's going on with you number three what's going on between the two of us and number four what's going on in the environment and as a you know as a, an educator with people with their helping people with their horses one of the hardest things to do <laughs> nicely is say you're the problem you know what i mean <laughs> uh and that is such a great way to break the ice, to 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 have people. You know, I, I I list the four things, and I say usually what happens is people who are having trouble with their horses are very aware of number two and number four. What yeah. my bloody horse is doing, and why, right. and, and and that lady over there with the umbrellas causing it. You know, number two, what's going on with them? Number four, what's going on in the environment? Without giving any thought to. Am I in my own body? Yeah. And, and you know, number one, what's going on with me? And number three, what's going on between me and my horse? And it's relationally. Relationally, right. yeah. And, 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 you know, how much of that number one is in number three sort of thing. And it really gets people to where it, for me, it kind of sets it up to where I can point that out, you know, because I'll talk about this before anybody's got any horses in the arena, you know, everybody's sitting around. But for me, it really, sets it up to when I point those things out later on, it's not an accusation. Mm -hmm. It's an observation. Oh, yeah. This number one, you, you, how's number, you think number one's going really well right now? And they, oh, no, God, I was thinking about, uh, 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 and, they, right. and they can, you know, in, so in, instead of pointing the finger and, and it kind of coming across judgmental, you know, it's just quite observational, like, hey, you tell me. I'm not going to tell you you're doing it wrong. How's number one going right now? And they'll kind of stop and think, and oh yeah, and then they can yeah. So yeah, so thank you because I've I've used that a lot and it's been very very helpful. Well, I, I'm so glad that it has, and it's those that the awareness um, practice that you're talking about that is um, it was taught to me as one question originally um, by by my mentor Jim Maddock who's passed away. He was an incredible teacher of mine and um, changed my life. And one of the questions that he taught me to ask, and it, it's now baked into my brain, it's baked into my consciousness is um, what's happening right now. And what it does is it, 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 there's a chapter in my book called scope and it, and it's learning to have scope allows us to zoom out and look at the system as a whole. And so when I started to, it, it allows us to pump the brakes on what's happening in the present so that we can, it's not about mindfulness. It's about being able to step back and see the whole picture. And mindfulness often, it, it's really more about number one, that channel one, what's going on within me. Scope is about those four channels. It's looking at the whole system. So it's like you zoom out and you can, you have an overhead view. And when we have that, we have a better understanding of the whole the whole picture of a system and how all those parts are interacting with each other. And so it is less of a pathological um, point of view and it's less about 
telling any one thing that it's the problem. It's just looking at how all of the pieces fit together. So when Jim taught me that question, and I, I try to let people know that remembering all those channels can be hard. And so just memorize the one question, which is what's happening right now. And from there, those four channels will come more naturally. Um, but when I, I learned that question and it changed my life, it allowed me to see more objectively to what was happening and less reactively and to start to make choices about how I wanted, what I wanted to do next or what was needed. And that was just in terms of how I took care of myself, but also how I worked with clients. It changed how I worked with my animals. It, it changed everything. And then when I spent more time, I, I have a herd of horses here and they all live together. And I, when I um, spent, I, I spend a lot of time with them and just grazing with them and studying their relational system. And that's where those four channels were born. And, and that's when I started to realize that on a mammal level, when we're living in groups, those four channels exist and we share awareness responsibility as, as herd members, because it's impossible to be in awareness commitment, or that's what I call it, where you're leading awareness all the time. You end up with awareness fatigue. So that's where those questions were born from Jim and then with the herd. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the herd because it's, it's, you know, you said you spend a lot of time just hanging with those horses. And I've been on about relationship before horsemanship for quite a while now, but you got a Mustang, how long ago was it? A year and a half? A year. a year ago. And what's funny is they said, you need to build all these big, solid six foot high pens to contain <laughs> this Mustang. Yes. And you did, but you haven't used them, have you? I did for about, they say a lot of things about what you need to do with a Mustang. Um, and I have a lot to say about that. But um, let's see, I did for about a week when I was allowing a lot of the things I'd heard to, um, to, I was making choices based on what I had heard while I was observing what I was, you know, what was happening. So I, I did what I do, which is use scope, but I also, I, I really do study a lot and I do try to get mentorship and information and I try to not be reckless about my own choices, but I, I am a social scientist and I am an observer. I'm a noticer of things. That's my, that's my jam. So I did a lot of studying what was happening in the system. And so I had her in the pen with other horses nearby, um, but only for about a week or two. And then I realized that it was completely unnatural to have her alone and that, um, that I needed to get her with the herd and to have freedom to move and take care of herself and get away from the pressure that I was presenting just by being there. Um, I needed to do that as fast as possible, but all of the, the, the rule books about what you do with Mustangs are like, you have to get a handle on them and they need to be halter trained and they're going to go through all your fences and, so I started wondering 
well, why do Mustangs do that? What causes that? And I, 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 you know, operate with a needs-based model. That's what my model is. It's needs-based. So it, if that's what's happening with the horse, then there's something that they're getting too much of or not enough of. And so I realized, well, if I'm putting a ton of pressure on the relationship, then I'm sure she's going to go through the fence. Right. <laughs> so I let her out. I let her out with the herd. I didn't have her halter trained at all. Nothing. No handle on her. I could move. I could. She, we were touching, but I did everything freedom based. And she's just and, wonderful now, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, she's my buddy. Like I, I, she's the first one to come running to me when I go out to the herd. She's, and she's an incredible member of that herd. She's taking over the herd is what she's doing as the matriarch. She's slowly moving through and she's changed the herd. And she's so, you know, she's in, so inquisitive. Like we, Rob and I went over and saw you here a little while ago and we went out there with him. And she came up to me and like had a bit of a sniff and like, who are you and what's yeah. going on? And, you know, and it's, and, and, and this is, it's hard to have these conversations, I think, without, without saying somebody else is doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to have them because I think there are better ways of, of doing things. And I'm writing an article right now for a, um, a magazine in Australia. They contacted me and they wanted me to do a, an article on the basics. Mm-hmm. leading, tying up, mm-hmm. trailer loading, picking up feet and putting a, what we'd call a rug in Australia, a blanket on them. And I, and I had to email back and go, well, I don't, I don't think those are basics. Those, mm-hmm. there needs to be a lot of stuff go on before you do those. And, and I would like, I'd rather do an article on the basics that, those things happen almost organically. Those things are easy. That's right. If you can get all this other stuff. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll, 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 we'll do that. And so when I, so part one, it's a longish article. So part one, I think might not be out yet in Australia, but it's definitely, you know, I've seen a proof of the article and everything. And I said in the start of that, you know, there's a, there's kind of a, you know, horse trainers are always, most horse trainers are always developing what they do and making it better. And they're always looking for ideas. They're not stuck in their ways. They're always looking for better things. But the problem is horse trainers, the ideas they come up with are predicated on the fact that I have to produce a result in a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so that limits a lot of possibilities Mm-hmm. of looking at things. And I said, so, you know, and I said, so then those horse trainers get asked to write articles like this. Now, professional horse trainers aren't reading the article. Your average horse owner at home oh, who has right. all the time in the world is reading these articles. And then they, they get told to do things a certain way with their horses because there's, mm-hmm. and it's not explained, but because there's a ter- certain time frame behind it. I said, I'm, you know, I don't train horses for the public anymore. And I think having relationship first makes the whole thing easy. So the first article is about, you know, the relationship part and how you develop that and how that can lead into the beginning of training. And the, and the horse that I, the horse that I'm using in the, in the article is pictures of our foal Rupert. So Rupert has been weaned. Mm-hmm. 
We weaned him at 10 months old. He's probably, he may have been weaned for about six weeks now. Um, and he, when he was very young, he was very flightish and skittish and, you know, kind of like that. And I spent a lot of time with him and he's just the sweetest little horse. Where was I going with this? Oh, talking about, so, you know, like with the Mustangs, a lot of times there's those hundred day Mustang things. Mm -hmm. and, and so you've got to get things done in a certain amount of time. And, and what I think is, well, let's say the first thing, put them in a small pen on their own. Okay. You're starting off on the wrong foot, aren't you? You're taking the horse out of yeah. its natural environment. And so you've already influenced the outcome right there. That's right the start there. of influence. And you're taking a left turn off the road that, that should be, that, that you could be on. And there's no going back from there. Then you just, there's no going it's back. almost like piling trauma on trauma on trauma. It is. Well, and if you think about it, I mean, not to belabor this, but I will. It's a needs-based way of looking at the world. If I am doing that to that horse, I am, I'm showing up as another mammal that is ignoring their basic needs. And so I've already broken the trust. It's a bit like colonization. It's exactly what it is. And it's not even what we need. So it's very confusing because we're doing to them what we do to ourselves that just makes us really sick. And, you know, I, I think that was what I noticed really early on with the Mustang was that, you know, if I want to be friends with this horse, which was really my only, I just wanted to have a nice relationship. I have no like goals in mind other than, I don't know what we're, what that is going to mean for us, what we're going to do together. I want us to have a balanced, healthy relationship with open communication where we both get our needs met and we're both able to express that and listen to each other and have choices around how we navigate the relationship. That's what the herd does. And so we, we share space and resources and we stay together and we negotiate needs. If I want that with her, then I better listen to hers. And I, and so how could I isolate her or put her in confinement? Not that nothing natural, there's nothing natural about doing that to a foraging herd animal. And so it it felt really wrong. I spent a lot of money building that Mustang. Yeah, it's, it's quite it's <laughs> it quite was hefty. definitely a humbling experience to open the gate with this horse that I can't even halter yet, and to watch her walk out and realize, you know, there it is. The you know, and you know, I I have it on video and a couple beautiful photographs of the moment when I opened the gate and said, you know, I, I, I think I'm doing this wrong. And she walked through and then she turned around and came back and got me. Did she? Yeah. And we, we went and walked the pasture together. Yeah. She, I mean, we were already developing some feel in the relationship and, you know, and I, I think she, some of that inquisitive inquisitiveness that you noticed when you met her and how it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about that aliveness and that curiosity, that's a natural part of the mammal. And, you know, and when we don't allow other mammals to have all of their needs met, those are the kinds of things that start to take a hit. We start to, you know, that's those things start to become depressed. So those parts of us, 
you know, that aren't getting enough blood flow, so to speak, you know, that those parts of us that need airtime and need a seat at the table, when we're not getting those things, we, we shut down. And that's what depression looks like. And, and, feels and that's like. what I inverted commas, well-trained horse looks like. Yeah, they're shut down. Mm. It's, it's what a well-trained human looks like. They're, we're, we're shut down. We're buttoned up. And I, you know, I, I've, I've been in my own, you know, personal journey and, and conflict around that of like the parts of me that, you know, that, that got very overly socialized to be that way. And then the parts of me that, you know, thank goodness stuck with the animals throughout my whole life so that I, I could be in conflict around that until I could find a way to resolve it. And now I, I, I live my life very differently because I, refuse to be asleep at the wheel. Do you feel, hmm, what's the question here? Do you feel like you've got to the bottom of who you are? Well, I think we're, we're always de developing and evolving, but I think I, I think I know who I am. I think I know, you know, I, I think I know um, there's so many aspects of our identity. And I think that, you know, I know the, I know what strengths I have to offer others. You know, I know in a, in a herd what my role is. You know, I know I came into the world with that. That's part of our temperament. And so I know I know that about myself and I know um, I've done a lot of work to know the places where I have scar tissue, where I have some liabilities. Um, I know some of the identity pieces of, you know, what I like to do and that makes me who I am. Um, I know how to operate my own machinery so that I, I can function well. I'm very high maintenance as it turns out. Um, I think most of us are more high maintenance than we, than we know or would like to, you know, when I got sober, I, I started to learn about my needs and how neglected they were. And I was, a you know, by the time I got sober, I was, I was a very controlled drinker and I, I was pretty high functioning, but um, it was a, there were lots of periods in my, in my alcoholism where it was, um, there could have been some, some rock bottoms that didn't happen. But by the time I finally did get sober, it wasn't like a giant crash that happened or there had already been a bunch of those. But, um, but I, I did have, I, I did have a huge reckoning around how little I knew about caring for myself um, how, what I, what I needed on a daily basis or weekly basis that allowed me to, to really be balanced and to, to be stable and to be in a state of ease. And I've been, you know, studying that for a long time. So I know how to operate my own machinery and, you know, what my needs are. And I think that those, that's really essential to knowing who we are. And I can tell people what, what, is involved in that. And so they can decide how they want to operate with me, you know, and I think that's, I know how to do that now. 
I have to say, I, you know, I learned a lot of that in many, many years of therapy, becoming a therapist, um, getting sober. But I, I have to say that the time with the herd has been, I think that's probably really put all of that into focus, really learning how to take care of myself and how to negotiate needs with others. That comes from being with the horses. So you just mentioned many years of therapy and then you said, and then I became a therapist. Which came first? Well, so my mom is a therapist. Oh, I didn't know that. And yep, she's a PhD psychologist. And um, she, uh, so I, and I was the, um, I was the, the truth teller. Uh, identified patient in the family system. So I was the most symptomatic. And so I would, and, you know, and at that time, the approach was to call me the problem and put me in therapy. So I've been in therapy my whole life. And I, I didn't always have good therapy, but I, I, I've always known it as a place to go for, um, for help. I've always known it as, you know, and I, and so I've on and off throughout the years have, have done different kinds of therapy. And I've done, I've really, I became a therapist, um, in 2001 and, um, and have experimented with all different kinds of healing and, and wellness. But, um, but being a, a, client in therapy came before being a therapist. And, and I'll tell you, becoming a therapist was, it was a terrible idea. And it was actually my last ditch effort of trying to run from myself so that I could focus on other people's, I'm using quotey marks here, problems and not have to deal with myself. And which is one of the ways that I, I ran from, from really feeling myself was focusing on others. And so I got a license to focus on others and not have to deal with myself. And, um, and guess what? It didn't work. And so I still had to deal with myself. So my rock bottom, both in, you know, recovery around, you know, alcoholism and my emotional rock bottom came after I became a therapist. I, I have a little bit of a theory about therapists. <laughs> And, and it's not a no, it's not a bad theory. It's okay. I probably do too. Um, that I, I like a lot of the therapists that I've talked to had therapy first, and I feel like you kind of get, or they kind of get like, wow, that that did so much for me. I would like to do that for others. Is that was that kind of your? into that or was it because your mom was a therapist excuse me no i mean i i was teaching creative writing and poetry and working in you know a university and um publishing and like that was and i was really still running from myself and i actually well i'll tell you the story of what happened? Cause it's kind of funny. I, I actually just shared this with a couple of therapist friends. We all shared the story of when uh, they're equine therapists too. They all shared the story of the moment that we decided to become therapists and they were all hilarious moments that were like, you know, just, so I, 
I, I had been in therapy on and off, you know, forever. And, um, and I was on antidepressants and I decided I, I decided Dr. Beth, the psychiatrist, which I am not decided I wanted to go off the antidepressants because don't you know, I don't need them anymore. And so, and I was on an antidepressant that had, you really have to taper off of because there's a lot of side effects of going off of. And, um, and I got really sick. Like I couldn't, I was really struggling to get off the antidepressant and I, and be not feeling well physically. And also because I was not taking it anymore after years of taking it, I started to get anxious and depressed. And so instead of going to a therapist or a psychiatrist, I went to a homeopath and I decided that I was going to get this homeopath to help me get off the antidepressant. And, um, again, this was like me and my self will, I can handle it. And I was sitting in his, in the office, in the waiting room. And I had such bad vertigo that I had to lay down on the couch and I'd never seen the person before. It's my first appointment. So I'm laying down in the couch in this guy's waiting room and there's a bookcase right in front of me. And I'm looking at all the titles of the books and they're all sideways and kind of spinning but I realized that the titles are all psychology books that were very familiar to me because they were, you know, on my mom's bookshelf and all my years of therapy, you know, you spend a lot of years in therapy rooms and you look at therapists' bookshelves. And so there I was, I'm like, am I in a therapy office? And I realized that the homeopath shares an office with a therapist. And so I'm in a shared waiting room, dizzy, trying to get off the antidepressants. And I, and I'm like, and I think to myself, I don't know if it's like a higher power moment or whatever, maybe I should be a therapist. And that was the idea. That was when I decided, I think I'm going to stop teaching poetry. I'm going to become a therapist. I couldn't even sit up straight because I was spinning, trying to get off the antidepressants. And that was where the idea was born. Like a terrible idea in no, in no shape to help anyone. And I like that. And that's how I lived. It was lots of running from myself. It was a vertigo influenced career change. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was antidepressant withdrawal and vertigo. And What's the, what's yeah. the, apart from the vertigo, what's the, you said you were sick from the coming off the antidepressant. What, what symptoms do people have coming off antidepressants? It varies. And I, you know, I think it's, it just, um, some people will have, uh, dizziness and, and vertigo and there's actually, um, that they'll call it like a brain zap, which is like, a um, where you almost get, it feels like these little electrical impulses that kind of go up your spine. They call them the zaps. And, um, it's, I mean, you're, you know, you're, neurochemistry is changing and it's so there's you know you're feeling it on a nervous system level and so you're it throws off all kinds of balances that have been chemically put in place with the antidepressant I don't have anything against or for antidepressants so I don't have an opinion about whether people should take them or not take them I think that's a a personal decision people have to make with their with their team hopefully of the people that support them and um but 
yeah, that you people can definitely have some people go off of them with, with no issue at all. But I'm a sensitive, delicate flower. I if I'm gonna if there's gonna be a reaction to something, I'm probably the one who's gonna feel it. I'm a pretty sensitive. If you are loving the Journey On podcast with Warwick, we know you'll benefit greatly from his online video library. Showing footage of real-time training sessions, you will learn how to approach situations with your own horse in an empathetic and effective way. The video library has been life-changing for tens of thousands of people and horses all over the world. Warwick invites you to check out the seven-day free trial at videos.warwickshiller.com. Mammal. Um, something else I wanted to talk about that said, you know, okay, so you talked about your childhood saying, you know, you felt like your, I forget what the terminology used, your needs weren't met or something like that. Suppressed. Suppressed. There we go. And I just wanted to bring this up because anybody, you know, we, we all, I think we all, Anybody that's had kids learns about stuff and kind of goes, oh, God, I'm not such a bad person. I did it all wrong. You know, one minute you were telling me that you, you know, your childhood wasn't the best. You weren't emotionally supplied with what you needed or whatever, you know. And then you said, my mother's a PhD psychologist. So, like, if <laughs> if she, this is not judging her or anybody. It's just trying to help people at home realize, hey, no one gets it right. You know what I mean? So if no, you're I mean, kind of sitting there listening to this thinking, oh, God, I screwed my kids up or I'm screwing my kids up or whatever. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that because, you know, it's. It's a great point. It's, you know, you can, uh, you know, I think everybody's doing the best they can with the information they currently have, you know. And The last part of that sentence is really important, though, about the information that we have. And when we're on autopilot and we're not really committed to awareness, those four channels, and we're not living our lives that way, then that we have limited information. And so, you know, that comes up in how we take care of ourselves and how we take care of others and how we take care of our relationships. And so, you know, that yes, we're doing the best we can with the information that we have, but there are ways of living that allow us to have more information. And so when we're numbing ourselves, when we're living in a deadened way, we're operating that way where we're, or we're self-focused, you know, we're self-centered, we're in the ego, we're, we're stuck in our own thinking. We have limited information and that, it, you know, it's our, it is our responsibility to be an aware, awake mammal. That is part of herd responsibility is to be participate in awareness. And so, you know, I, I do think we're doing the best we can with the information that we have. And, you know, you can't unhear this, what I'm saying right now, you also can be more aware. And, I think that's, you know, I take that responsibility to my core. You know, I, I, and whatever I become aware of next, I get to go back and repair, which is a huge part of relationship. It's not about getting it perfect. It's about becoming aware, trying to stay aware, try to deepen that awareness and go back and repair where needed and move on. 
And so, you know, did I have a PhD psychologist as a mom? I did. And was her awareness as, did she have enough scope? She did not. Her awareness was limited. And so a lot of the choices that she made for me in my childhood were based on a limited scope. And the good news is, is we are designed to evolve and we're designed to evolve past the point of development of our own children. And so, you know, I, I have, I've probably developed past her point of development and my daughter who's 11 has already developed past mine. <laughs> She's this incredible being, you know, and I, I hope she continues to, and, and it allows me to learn from her and, become even more aware because of her and, and to continue to develop. But yeah, we're, we are such imperfect learning animals and there's no, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But once you know that awareness is a thing that we, it's a phenomenon that we, that part of our survival as as mammals and mammals in groups, once we know that that is a responsibility, you can't unknow it. Oh, yeah, most certainly. Um, a lot of this stuff, like say with the horses or whatever, you know, once you see things, you can't, you cannot see them. And mm-hmm. I, we just went to a horse show in Arizona and um, took three horses down there. And one of them was Horse Bundy, the one I rode in the trail rides when we go to trail rides. Yeah. That's his, I've never taken him to a horse show before. He's 10 years old and I've never taken him to a horse show. And I realized at that horse show that, wow, he has some separation anxiety that's not evident here at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way they were stalled at the horse show, they couldn't see each other. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he was, anyway, I, I was having such a hard time because like, well, I can't just tell him to shut up like I would have done in the past. You know what I mean? Like it was so much yeah. easier when I didn't know what I know now, you know? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. I mean, is it separation anxiety or is it just him stating his needs? It, it, I still haven't figured it out yet, but I know I've got some, you know. I. I he was stalled where he couldn't see. His herd members. Right, yeah. It's completely unnatural. Oh, yeah. It's what he was, Well, separation anxiety is not a problem. Separation anxiety is, you know, in the wild, a horse is, from the time they're born to the time they die, is rarely out of the eyesight of herd members. I know. And um, we end up moving him to where he was back to back with Ray, the stud horse. Yeah. Um, and just, he couldn't see him, but he was right through the wall there. And mm. that settled him down quite a bit. But I mean, it was, off, you know, the way the stores were set up, we were off to a bad start. But the, the thing about it is, I learned a lot about Bundy there that I didn't know here because it's, it's mm-hmm. not, well, it's, it's not as apparent here, but now I'm like, oh yeah, there's little things here that he's been doing that I kind of go, oh yeah, well, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal here. It was a much yeah. bigger deal there. So I've got, I've got some work to do, but, but that's good. I mean, you get, you know, you, you get information like that and you, you go on with it, you know? Yeah. You study the information and you experiment and see how do I bring this into balance? What's needed that allows this to come into balance. It wants to come into balance on its own. All natural systems do. And so that's, 
that and that becomes the puzzle to solve is a lot of experimenting. It's not about there's some like quick fix or there's one answer. It's about being humble enough to be in the experiment. And we come up with these hypotheses and then we test them. Does this help things come into balance naturally? And when we, you know, I could hear in your telling of the story, some heartbreak around it, like that, you know, it's that, that him being isolated and anxious, like that, that was, it's troubling and it, you want to fix it. You want, you want to give him what he needs. Well, yeah. And that, and there was also a part of it where you were talking about to where you said something about, oh, it had to do with like your childhood and your mom and whatever, uh, had to, but what, what, anyway, what it made me think of was, you know, Bundy has got, you know, I, he's 10 years old. I've had him for nine years. So there's a lot of the way I used to do things in that horse. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, we're talking about Chance, who's now three, who was born here and Rupert, who's a yearling yeah. and the, and the, the different way I've, I've done things with them versus what I did with Bundy years ago. And so there's a, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unraveling with Bundy, even though he's, you know, for the most yeah. part, he seems like he's pretty cool. There's a lot of unraveling in there because there's a lot of the old mm-hmm. me in there. And yeah, taking him to that show just kind of, yeah, really kind of brought to my attention. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's still quite a bit of, uh, stuff in there. So yeah, it was pretty interesting. The baggage. Yeah. My baggage, not his. My, my horse, Rosie, I, You've met yeah. her, the roan mare. I got her when I was two weeks sober. So you can only imagine the baggage that we have together. <laughs> I picked the most sensitive horse on the planet at a time where I was like a live wire. I was in, in, in probably my most vulnerable state. And I picked a horse just like me. And the two of us went on our merry way and went straight into reined cow horse training and you know riding so much I was wearing through the leather soles of my boots every three months and you know like that was so now like 14 years later I have this horse and the two of us have our our story of our relationship and you know it's we've done a lot to to let things come into more balance and there's so much ease in that relationship that certainly was not there in the beginning because neither of us had it, but, um, I, we've both changed a lot and, you know, she was living in a box stall and, you know, in a training program and now she's in a herd and, you know, and I'm very much the same way. We've both, you know, changed our ways of life together, but there's still residue. I call it residue. It's like the residue of the past. There's still, and some scar tissue that is, it's, um, she cribs, you know, and that's, I, it's a, it reminds me of where we've been, that, that neurotic habit, you know, it reminds me of where she and I have both been. It's funny, Bundy's a cribbit too. Yeah, they, they're good reminders of what happens when the mammal doesn't get what it, what he or she needs. And um, sometimes the cribbing makes me so mad and sometimes it makes me feel shame. And sometimes I'm like embarrassed when other people see it. And, and sometimes I just feel like compassion and, and like, I want to rescue it and fix it. And, 
but most of the time when I'm like in my most stable state of mind, um, I'm grateful for, you know, that it, I, I, she does wear a cribbing collar a lot of the time because I, I know how bad the cribbing can be for them physiologically, but it's a reminder of where we've been. And some of it is, you know, I didn't, I didn't create all of it. Some of it is, is, is who she is. I have to, I have to let that be as well. You know, Bundy broke his foot, broke his P2 when he was a two-year-old and um, he was in a, so they fused his P1 and P2 and they plated and screwed P2 and, and he was in a cast for four months and had to be in a box stall. Um, couldn't be hand walk, couldn't come out of the box stall. So that's where he learned to crib in there. And I always thought, oh, well, when, you know, when we bought this place and he could live in a herd with 24 hour access to, you know, you know, food with a slow feeder hay nets, the whole bit that, that, that would go away and it hasn't gone away. It's been yeah almost seven years now and it hasn't, it hasn't gone away. Um, but I, I know where it came yeah. from, but I still think, you know, there's still, he's a, he might be a lot like me actually. <laughs> now that I think about it, he's a, he, on the outside, he seems like he's pretty chill and underneath he's pretty anxious. I think, yeah, I never thought of that. Well, I've ridden with the two of you and I think we've talked about that a little bit and about, you know, I, I see so much of Rosie and myself. I'm like, geez, I wish I could crib, you know, now I'm like the sober person that doesn't allow myself to do any of these like compulsive habits, but I certainly, you know, I would be a cribber if I were a horse. <laughs> well, Beth and I can see each other while we're talking here, and you may have noticed me chewing my fingernails a little bit. I used to chew my fingernails, but now I have them painted so that I can't, really can't. Like it's the, but I have to, it's like my cribbing collar. Mm. And, um, you know, it's interesting, Rosie, I've done all kinds of really incredible adventures with her. And I did a clinic down south, um, at the V6, um, a couple years ago, I guess it was right pre pandemic. No, maybe it was during, I, it's all blur, but, um, we did, um, you know, it, it was a great experience and we, it was about five days and the beginning of the day, we'd go out and ride for a couple hours and go get all the cows and then, bring them in and, and do all kinds of arena work. And it was, it was beautiful. And, and I chose to go with like the fast group because I know Rosie and I know myself and we're busy. We have busy minds and we like to move. And so, you know, I've learned about her and about myself that if I don't have enough space to move and do and and be in my body and alive, I start to get a little neurotic too. And she does as well. And so, you know, I think about, you know, it's not how I started and it's also not how she started, but it's where we've become. It's where it's what we've arrived at. And so, you know, I really again, it's like allowing learning about what we need and allowing for that, allowing for those needs to be met. And we do come into balance and we get the best parts of ourselves and the most stable parts of ourselves when, when we listen to those signals. But yeah, I'm definitely a lot like her and uh, you are a lot like I Bundy. So. I, I've noticed I that. Think so. Except he has more hair. Um, you know, I can't figure out why Bundy wants to attack Rosie though. You know what? It's funny. He, um, 
it's only been here in the last mm, couple of months riding in the arena. Sometimes other horses come by and he'll kind of pin his ears and cock a leg at him. And other times he doesn't. And so I, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't really done anything with it because I don't know what's causing it yet. And, you know, at the horse show, and so we're in Arizona, there's 2,500 horses at this horse show. He did it a couple of times there, but most of the time he didn't. And so it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's like people ask me questions about my horse does this, what should I do? And I will I don't know what to do. First thing you got to figure out is why it's happening. Then mm-hmm. you can figure out what to do, but there is no what to right. do until you know what's causing it. You know, like you go to the doctor and he doesn't go, oh, well, take two aspirin. He goes, what's going on? What do you feel? Right. Oh, like I've got a pain in my chest. Oh, okay, let me have a look. Well, you've got a new shirt and there's still a pin stuck in the shirt and sticking in your right. chest, you know. Let's pull this right. pin out and see if it makes a difference. You know what I mean? Um, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great, I mean, the signals and symptoms are telling us about a need. And so if we suppress them, right. like here's a painkiller, we don't take the pen out. And so scope and have really trying to look at what's going on in the system allows us to try to get to the root cause and try to get to the source and see where, where there's a need not being met. And, um, it's, you know, it, it's, that's really at the, at the heart of, just changing the way that we, as um, trying to be in control of things, it's it's changing that paradigm yep. and being more curious. Wise words. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna start asking you questions, saying you're full of wise words. Okay. And this first question that you chose, you have quite possibly already covered it. But first question is: if you could spread a message across the world one that people would listen to, what would that message say? Apart from buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've already stated that I don't want anyone to read it. So I I don't have a message trying to sell the book because I I just want to go crawl in a hole and hide with my book, all copies of my book. Um, The message for people is um, that we are that we are mammals and that we are herd animals and that we have needs and we have them all day, every day, and that we need each other. I think that's the core. Wow. That's a great message. That's, that could be the best answer to that question I've had in the whole podcast. I love that. Oh, I'm so glad. You can thank the horses for, for that. I thank the horses for a lot of things. Don't worry. Uh, what's yeah. the most worthwhile thing that you've put your time into? Something that you've done that has changed the course of your life? Getting sober. I knew that was what was going to be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got sober in 2008, and it was a decision to wake up and to stay awake. And um on every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and it's changed absolutely everything. And, um, it's been, it, it, I've, I really had to learn how, how to live. And, um, and it would, and it was a decision to be fully alive and that, and to really commit to that vibrancy that I think we actually all want, but, that, you know, it comes with a lot of commitment. It comes with a lot of practices and it's hard work. 
to, to be able to, we live in a very insensitive world. And so when we are fully alive and awake, we're connected to all our sensitivity. So it takes a lot to learn how to cope. You know, earlier on in the podcast, you talked about pre-sobriety and you said that, you know, when you're drinking and doing different drugs that you were either suppressing things or you were trying to make yourself feel more alive. And I, yeah, and it's, yeah, I, I can see that in, in both of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gabor Mate talks a lot about that in his work. I and, love Gabor Mate. Um, me too. He's, he's a brilliant thinker and healer and, um, and he talks about in the, um, um, in the realm of hungry ghosts, he talks about the addict's dilemma and, um, and, you know, it's, it's about wanting to, to, to feel big things and to, to be fully alive and to not know how, how to, to actually have those feelings without substances and also to want to lose our minds. It's both. It's both and. You know, that book in the realm of hungry ghosts, it's, have you seen the, I'm sorry, off track. Have you seen the movie, The Wisdom of Trauma? Yeah. Yes. What a great movie. So powerful. Yeah. Um, for you guys at home, it's a movie called The Wisdom of Trauma. And I don't think, I know Gabor Mate is in it. I'm not sure that he made it. He didn't make it, but it's certainly about his yeah. work. And it was made by two filmmakers here in the Bay Area, actually. Um, and he's definitely central, but he didn't. Right. Yeah, um, but in that realm of Hungry Ghosts, it really, I, I kind of, I had, I think I'd figured it out by that point in time anyway. But what really hit home for me reading that is that, you know, Gabor Mate says that all addiction is rooted in trauma mm-hmm. and no one chooses to be an addict you know it's it's meeting and once again it's meeting a need that right you know it's meeting a basically it's meeting a chemical need that your body doesn't meet on its own and it really um you know in 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 australia about two or three or four years ago there were some huge big bushfires like like terrible fires all over australia Mm -hmm. and there was one town to where, and it was, you know, relatively smallish country town in Australia, but they caught these two looters. Mm. And, you know, it was in the news in Australia and, and, you know, all Australians are like, oh, they're terrible, you know, like how they're just bad people. But I looked at that the same way I kind of look at addicts, like, can you imagine the life circumstances that have led to the point to where you feel you need to do that in that situation. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's hard because like, you know, being raised with the idea that people that do things like that, are, oh, addicts, people that do drugs, <clears throat> they're bad people. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to get your head around. And, you know, you know, how divided this country is right now. And I'm sure half the country would totally disagree with me. And mm-hmm. say they're bad people, but I, I really feel 
that our, you know, our social and political views are just the sum total of every experience we've ever had. And so you don't, Mm -hmm. you know, no one's an idiot. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if someone's got an opposing view to you, they're not an idiot. They've just had different experiences than you. Excuse me. And I feel that people, if they were to, you know, look at addicts as in they're just bad people, a lot of times (laughs) my reply could be, no, it's just their their numbing of choice is illegal and yours is not. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) It's a good point. Um, And, yeah, the... It's funny in, um, oh, I'm getting off track here, but this is a great story. I don't know if I've ever told you this one. In that book, the, and I don't know, I've never talked about this in the podcast before, in that book, Stealing Fire, there's mm-hmm. a great passage in there where there's a guy in England, he's a, a lawyer, we call him a barrister, um, a solicitor, sorry. Um, he's a lawyer, but he also, and he, no, sorry, he's not a lawyer. He uh, is a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and but he's also on the board of, like the government body in England that regulates drugs that are legal and illegal, whatever that might be. Anyway, he has a, has a patient come in one time and she is a upper middle-class lady and she's been kicked. She's been banned from her local, all the local pubs in her area. You know, she's not working class. She's upper middle-class been banned from all the local pubs in the area because she just snaps, like has these brain snaps and throws glass ashtrays at the bartender, <laughs> things like that. Like alcoholic yeah. rages. And it turned out that she'd had a, a traumatic brain injury from a oh. horse riding accident. And that's what was causing it. So he kind of, he doesn't know anything about horse riding accidents. He mm-hmm. thought they'd be pretty safe. So he looks into the UK statistics on horse riding accidents and one in every 350 outings on a horse in England results in a serious head injury or a death. Or, and he thought, well, that that's a very high rate. Like that, that's a very high rate. Yeah. And if you've ever seen, you ever been to England and see where people have to ride? A lot of times, they they only place they can ride is on a little paved road that's one car wide mm-hmm. with hedges everywhere and cars come flying around the corner. It's pretty scary. But he. So at some meeting or in some public forum, he looked up, oh, at, at, that's right, at the time, MDMA, so ecstasy, was public enemy number one in England. Like this, this stuff's mm-hmm. going to, you know, kill everybody sort of thing. And I think one in every 60,000 or 6,000, I can't remember, ecstasy pills taken results in some sort of an injury, mm-hmm. head injury or death or whatever. And so he, he, he made the statement <laughs> that horse riding or ecstasy is 200 times safer than safer. riding a horse. And his uh, boss called him into the office and gave him a good royal ass chewing. And in the book, they said in the US, she would be somewhere between the head of the DEA and the secretary of state. That's, <laughs> that's, it's one combined position in England, but that's how high up they are, like somewhere between the, it's a cross between the head of the DEA and the Secretary of State. And this lady gets him in her office and just reams him and says, you, you, you can't do that. And he says, why not? She says, well, you cannot compare things that are legal with things that are illegal. And he said, well, why, why is MDMA illegal? She says, because it's dangerous. <laughs> and he said, no, but this legal thing over here is right. 200 times 
more dangerous than this? Why is it? And, and I, I just thought the argument was, was quite funny. He ended up losing his job over the whole thing. But he went yeah, in the book, they go through and he listed all, all these things, uh, uh like, uh, things that cause, cause death, you know, like driving a car, yeah. uh, r- riding a horse is as dangerous, riding a horse in England is as dangerous as riding a, a motorbike for 30 miles, I think something like that. Um, oh but anyway, goodness. he listed things from top to bottom yeah. and, you know, number one was like heroin. But then there was cocaine, but then there was number three was alcohol, number four was smoking, and then like number right. eight was was uh horse riding, you know, and number thirty six was MDMA and marijuana was like number fifty seven, you know. But it's it's just funny that whole what's legal and what's what's not based on danger right. and yeah, it was just based on yeah, danger, based on how dangerous right. it is, you know, and it was just such an interesting uh, one of my favorite passages in that whole book. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyway, back to your question, sorry. Um what's an unusual habit you have or something out of the ordinary that you really love? Well I love sheep herding and I don't know if it's a habit, but it might be. I've been doing it since I was twenty. I grew up on a sheep and- farm in Australia, so this is neither Un- unusual is neither unusual or out of the ordinary, but anyway, it might be for some people. For you, but but it is here, and certainly as a twenty-year-old, when I took that up as a hobby, it was highly unusual to be a college student that was spending weekends and you know evenings doing the border collie thing. So that's I've been doing that. I was about to say I'm 38. I am actually 48. Um, so I've been doing that for, you know, 28 years. And I, the, the partnership with like with the dogs and learning what I learn about, um, about myself and leadership and, um, the phenomenon of pressure, Mm -hmm. um, it's just been an incredible classroom for me. And I, I love doing that work. It's, it's incredible. It, it's a little bit of a habit. Like I haven't been able to quit it. I'm I, the border collie thing has been, it's been really a huge part of my life. Yeah. It's, yeah, I think it's pretty amazing stuff, you know, like, because it's, it's almost like Liberty with horses to where mm-hmm. you really don't have control of the situation. You're, control, you really you're controlling don't. number one, what's going on with me, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I bet it really makes you aware of energy, intention, body language. Um, and scope, understanding the system and places of pressure and being able to study pressure and releases of pressure in a system. And you know, I, I went to all kinds of clinics and trainers and I've, you know, trained with all different people, but my main teacher, um, who I go to is, um, Bill Burhow and his, you know, he really gives the dogs huge amounts of freedom and his place is the most similar to like Scottish Hills. There's no trees. It's just Hills and, you know, hundreds of acres of hills and, and he uses a giant group of sheep with young dogs so that they, and using those hills so that they can understand and feel scope. And it's about those channels of awareness and you can't teach it to them through control. You have to let go and let them feel it. 
And I'm so glad that I have had that experience alongside my dogs because it's taught me how to do that in my own life. And, um, and then how to translate that to my horses as well, how to give them, you know, a lot more space and room to communicate. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been a, a really incredible practice and, and place to learn the habit of letting go, letting go of control and, um, and watching things come into balance on their own. So the next question might be totally connected to that one. Oh no, it's the same question. Sorry. <laughs> I was reading the next question. It's the same question. Uh, okay. The next question is, what is one common myth about your profession or field that you want to debunk? And these questions came from Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors book. And, and in that, when he asked that question, he said, given the fact that your profession might not be something usual, you know, like, mm. so, so first, what is your, prof like, choose your profession <laughs> before you answer the question. After talking for a while and listening to the circuitous path of my profession, you actually have to ask that question, right? You're like, what do you exactly well, that you, you know, do best? You, you are a, you're a, 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 therap a you're a therapist, but you're an equine assisted therapist. But then this other thing is not really either of those, you know, what, what, what is it you, th what, what is it you say you do? I mean, I'm a, I'm a student of mammal systems and I, and I, and, and now I work with, um, I, I am an equine therapist. I am a therapist. I'm, um, but I, I now work with, um, groups and, and corporations and institutions and help them understand their culture from a mammal perspective and looking at it through the lens of, of our natural leadership and our innate signal systems so that we can have cultures and groups that are more interdependent and have more ease. So do you realize if you had an and office so, and you had that written on your door that would take up the whole door? Yeah, yeah it would. <laughs> okay. It would. So I, I mean, I've tried to give myself a title and the closest that I have come has been like, um, like mammal teacher, mammal teacher or mammal teacher or noticer of things that's been lately. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just a noticer of things. And I, but I think that any of the roles that I've been in, so I, you know, I taught writing and I am a writer and I'm a therapist and, you know, leadership and culture consultant and any of those titles, the myth about them is that somehow I know what you need. Mm. And you know, my mentor, Jim, used to say, if there's any point that you ever think that you know what somebody else should do, you need to raise your liability insurance. If you're going to start telling people what to do with their lives, you better raise your, you better raise the limits of your liability insurance. You're going to get yourself into big trouble. And I, you know, once in a while, he'd say it to me just to remind me, you know, and it was so brilliant and true. And I think we need to get out of that mindset in any helper role. You know, my role is to ask questions and be an observer. It really is to be a noticer of things and to say those things out loud. I like, I carry the lantern and help shed light on what's happening. I ask the question, what's happening right now? 
when it needs to be asked. And I help people find their answers so they can find out what they need. But they need to, that I want people to be able to have that capacity expand within them so they don't need me to do it. And the myth about my profession is it's a very disempowering paradigm, which is that somehow an expert's going to tell you what to do with yourself or your relationships, whether they're with other people or with your animals, that's going to make things feel okay. And I think anyone that is playing that role is doing a disservice to those they're trying to help because they're not really teaching them how to help themselves, how to ask those questions, how to gain more awareness. It's always good to have another set of eyes and to ask those questions in community, to have helpers do that. But the best helpers are really good at asking questions and being gentle and loving while we find the answers and just to keep asking the questions. My best teachers have given that to me. So I think the biggest myth about any helping profession is that you're going to find someone who's going to have your answers. Wow. That's pretty profound. We were trail riding one day and you told me a quote, and you might not remember it right now off the top of your head, that your mentor Jim had told you. And I was like, it was so profound. And I wish I could remember what, do you remember what we were talking about? Oh my gosh. I quote him all the time because he's like so alive within me. Um, was it about, um, one of the things I'll, I, I quote from him a lot is about um, that there's only two human stories. And one of them is that we will not succumb to tyranny. And the other is that we will go to any length to protect those that we love. That wasn't it. It <laughs> <laughs> um, doesn't matter, but it was. Oh, it was about, um, I think with it, if I, if I remember correctly, we were talking about um, about fear of failure. That sounds familiar. Because the next question is, what do you think, uh, what's your relationship like with fear? Is it along these lines? Oh, uh, it might <clears throat> be. I don't know. Maybe it'll okay. come to me. I mean, Jim, yeah, if we talk long enough, all of what Jim has shared with me comes okay. out because I feel like it's my duty to share it with the world. But um uh, my relationship with fear is, um, I really trust the signals of the animal body to, for us to be alert. And, um, I think what the human ego does with that is to create this very complex web of fear that's very much about, um, things of the past or things of the future, but not necessarily what's happening in the present moment. And so I really use those awareness channels a lot. And, um, and another person who has been really influential in my life once said to me, you know, if there's, um, if you're in a situation where like you have no sense of humor, like you, you have not, like it's gone, you can't laugh about what's happening. You're probably about to die. Like you're, you're in bad shape. Like things are going horribly wrong. And, um, and, <laughs> I've really like, I've come to believe that and practice it, but I have to say that when I got sober, I really understood that my relationship, I was run by fear and it was about, it was about fear of the future and fear of, and, and trauma from the past. 
I, I, and he did not know how to just operate in alertness and awareness in the present moment. So I think I have like a healthy relationship with awareness and, and my survival system and that my body gives me signals. And sometimes those signals are flooded with alertness, but it's my job to interpret those and to put them in the right place. And so I really trust that now. And so I don't, you know, I, I watch my horses with such courage and bravery and they move away from pressure. And when they've reached that magical moment where they feel like they've gotten safe enough, they turn back and face it. And that's how I live. And, um, and so I have walked through all kinds of scary things and done all kinds of things that are, you know, of unknowns. But I think that now I have a lot more trust in my ability to use my resilience and my resources and to ask for help. And so I'm not, I just, I'm not run on, I don't, I don't run on fear anymore the way that I used to, which is probably why I don't need to numb myself as much because I, you know, or at all. I mean, I, I really, I do very, I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm sober, but I also really try not to do numbing behaviors. But anytime that alertness system's out of balance, you know, it's, it's going to create a, sensations and thoughts and emotions of fear. And when that happens, it just tells me that things are out of whack and that I'm, I'm needing more support. Great answer. That's, I think that's the best answer. One of the best answers I've heard to that. I've asked, every, oh, everybody so has bad. had me ask that question. So that was awesome. Okay. We've been talking for an hour and 50 minutes. We better wrap this up. So how do people find out more about you and where can they find the book? So the book will be in bookstores oh, really? everywhere beginning. That's April exciting. 12th. Yes. You can, yeah, you can, you can, um, order it on any of your online sources and it'll be in bookstores or you can order it through an independent bookshop if that's your, if that's what you like to support. And, um, and you can find me um, through the circleupexperience.com, which is my business and all of the offshoots of what I do really happen through that, through that website. Perfect. Well, it's been such a joy getting all these stories out of you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You guys at home, thanks for joining us. And I will catch you on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube. Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.